Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Near and far, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has put poets back to work. This is the Moscow School of Acting. They trained their actors to play charred bodies and lie next to burned-out cars until, at a shout from the director, they rose shook off the black ash, and were redeployed to shoot each other with live bullets in the neck, some without their heads. That was George Sirtis reading. Sirtis, a winner of Britain's T.S. Eliot Prize for Poetry and the James Tate Black Prize for Biography, has a particular knowledge of and empathy for Ukrainians suffering Russian aggression. As a boy, he and his parents fled the Soviet invasion of Hungary in 1956. Since the Ukraine war began, he has published at least two dozen poems on his Facebook page. One of the main themes is the relentless denial by Vladimir Putin's regime of the atrocities his forces are committing. I began our conversation by asking George Sirtis why this was what hooked him. I suppose it's galling. It's in a way more easily dealable than death and disaster in itself, because what there is to say about that must concern not so much, if you like, the, the act in itself, but its context and its, uh, the way it is perceived and the way it is presented. And there's something profoundly shocking to me, although theoretically it should not be unexpected, about the blank denial of things that appear to be absolutely true. And I trace this back, actually, before Russia. I mean, in a way, I was experiencing similar things with Trump, in which the assumptions seem to be that if people want to believe you sufficiently, you can tell them anything that they want to hear. And because we have so, much, so many alternatives for verification, for so-called verification, they'll go to a supermarket and pick their favorite brand. That is profoundly shocking in a way that massacres, genocide, savagery, brutality are nothing new. And I don't imagine lying is anything new. But in effect, to lie so brazenly, to lie so publicly, to lie so much in the face of available evidence is to me, I think, a deep psychological shock. It's going back to the notion of the big lie. I mean, so it has been there before. If you're going to tell them lies, tell them big, and then make them choose whether they believe you or whether they believe their hated opponents. There's a wonderful book by a young journalist. Well, he seems young to me. He's in his mid-40s, named Peter Pomerantsev, called Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. And it's based on his experience as a TV producer in Moscow at the beginning of this century, just when Putin took power. It's funny and terrifying. I first encountered this notion of nothing being true and therefore everything could be possible when I was um, researching some fiction that never came to fruition. But my story was set in Bosnia during that war, and I came across all this writing denying what took place there. Srebrenica never happened, for example. In 2000, I went to the morgue in Tusla, and I saw the thousands of paper bags filled with human remains. And to this day, many are still unidentified. And I was shocked by these deniers. It's a very disturbing part of modern life. I have read the Pomerantsev. I think it's a terrific book. Um, 
terrifying, as you say, and very, very funny at the same time. And the odd thing is, is that the basis of this psychological apparatus is apparent, I think, in some notions of, um, of postmodern thinking, that there isn't, in fact, an ascertainable, verifiable truth. There are only presentations of the truth. And if there are various presentations of the truth, then we cannot distinguish the more likely from the less likely. Now, that's a theory. Um, that's Baudrillard and people like that. And at one level, this remains kind of high university discourse, you know. And there's, a level, there's an element of truth in it, and there always is. Um, you, know, you can't completely rely upon official information. We know this. But I think it has percolated down. I think it has moved down so that it becomes almost an automatic assumption. There are many others of interesting books about this. I can't remember the name of this particular one. I could find it, which makes a case that essentially the development of the internet has facilitated the breakup of institutions and distrust in institutions. It's a very dramatic case, presented very intelligently, although dramatically. And you think, well, can it really be so? Is it so that, you know, people in the street, people who don't read or whatever, which is nearly all people, that they are now in a condition that their first instinct is distrust and especially of anything labeled official, like, you know, as the conspirators like to refer to the MSM, the Main Street media. And under those circumstances, one can persuade people of almost anything. You know, the earth is flat, etc., etc. There are people who believe such things. And if you can believe such things, you can also believe what somebody else tells you about Srebrenica. When you were a boy and fled the Soviet invasion of Hungary and arrived in Britain, these were not questions that were being asked. People had a basic understanding of what the facts of the situation were. No. On the other hand, what you probably did have, and I've heard accounts of this from people I met in Hungary, people who were basically British communists but working in, on, in Hungarian radio, charming people, very, very nice people, um, that a lot of people... Certainly, I think the Communist Party in Britain lost a lot of membership over it because their official line was that, you know, it was a counter-revolution and you'd, the Soviet line is that you're putting down, well, would you believe it? You're putting down Nazis. But of course, it's very shortly after the war in which um, Nazis, the same Nazis are still around, just happen to be in prisons. And if you open up the prisons, some of them will certainly come out. So if you wanted to find little bits of evidence... You can do. But on the whole, and I've often said this, that our welcome into Britain at the time was exemplary. We were heroes. I mean, not that we were. Neither my mother or nor my father took any part in armed resistance. But nevertheless, we were symbols of the oppressed small people being caught in the act of being oppressed. And therefore, any resistance. And we shared this towards Ukraine as well, I think, you know. We perceive Ukraine, naturally enough, uh, as the smaller bullied partner. And, but at that stage, the world was binary. There were two camps. There was a Cold War, and you were one or the other. 
and it was very difficult to be anything else. But I say that the channels of communication have changed so much and our options now are far greater. But in some ways, the world goes on exactly as it always has done. There are demagogues, there are claims. Well, you know, I don't need to go on. George Sirtis, I think it's time for another poem. I've been making, I've been doing readings about Ukraine recently. But what I've often started with is not one of the same shape, but a poem I wrote in 2014 about the incursion, about the uh, Crimea and so Mm -hmm. forth. And I'll give you the three lines on that. So this is a prologue. This is uh, Ukraine 2014. And so the bear put his paw through the bars and having torn off a leg, looked for a wing. We've been here before, said the caged bird. One of my favorites is one called Dva Corbis. Now, Corby is a Scottish word for crow, and it's about two birds of prey surveying a battlefield. Could you read that one, please? There were two of them, perched on a branch. Who's there now? asked one. There, below, lay two bright blue eyes and some white bones. A real feast. Now God bless murder. Let it be my turn, the other replied. After you, the first responded. There's bound to be more. There's bound to be more. That's the last line of the poem. And because we're talking and people can't actually see the lines laid out on the page, the form is interesting. Each of your Ukraine poems, George, is laid out in three three line stanzas with a final line. There's bound to be more as a summary. Is this a particular form of poetry or did you choose it because it allows you to express yourself short and quick? Uh, There are two questions packed up in that. It is a form which I believe I probably invented insofar as one invents these things. Essentially what you have are three high keys. So a line of five syllables and a one of seven and one of five. Uh, And you have three of those and you end with a line of five syllables. I don't invent the high key, that's ages ago, thousands of years ago. But um, I began writing at this sort of length when Twitter arrived, and I was fascinated to see what you could do at that stage of the 140 characters, and whether this had a kind of literary possibility. So I was writing cycles of 10 haikus joined up into a single narrative. And my previous book, not the current one, had many of those. And I continued to experiment. And when they moved the limit to 280 characters, I thought, okay, so now how does this expand? And I was fascinated by the notion of brevity because throughout my life, I've been publishing books of poetry since 1979. I've written some long poems, and I've always been fascinated by forms. So been through periods of sonnets, of ballads, of canzoni, etc. I'm always curious to know what is this musical instrument and what happens when you begin to play it. So at that point, I thought, well, let's see what comes of this. And you discover as you do it, that you have to very quickly come to some sort of crystallization but you must try to avoid the simplicities 
So you must speak a simple language. You might indulge yourself every so often with a fancy word like synchronicity or whatever. But the point is to keep the language simple and to seek within this very short form, to seek a transformatory moment at which you say, all right, I'm now entering something a bit more than I anticipated. I mean, the primary aim of most artists to avoid cliches. Why? Because cliches deaden. So you're looking for the truth beyond them, a truth that you don't know when you begin to write, but which arrives out of engaging with the language and the form and with the notion that there is something. So, you know, you might write four or five lines, which are plain realism. And then you come to a point in which you say, this is lifting off into a, into a kind of analogous territory, which throws a different light on affairs. And that I think is a whole point of poetry in a way, because certain things that happen to us as experience, they very easily become cliche in language. But you think language is the device we have, it is the greatest instrument. And with this instrument, you could begin to explore levels of experience that statements about experience can't do. So that's what is intriguing about this um, short forum. You know, when you first started posting them on Facebook, what hit me was the brevity. And it seemed like you had found a way of channeling the kind of dumbfounded disbelief and anger so many of us feel that kind of, Jesus Christ, I can't believe this but you poured it into a very formal mold. The very first poem about this, I'm, I've written plenty of other poems in this form about different subjects, but um, I have a Russian friend actually, my wife and I have a common Russian friend, the one who's from Moscow, who's been here for some while. And shortly before the invasion, she was popping in and I was saying, so when's the invasion going to start? And she gave me a slightly pitying look as though I was being utterly naive in thinking Putin would really do it. So there was a figure of Putin, actually. Um, and the, the whole sequence began with a couple of poems about Putin. Um, and they were ways of feeling my way in as to what kind of creature we are, we are being presented with. One common perception of Putin when we first saw those shots of him talking to his staff and talking to his generals on that incredibly long table and at great distance uh, because he's afraid of COVID and so forth. Nevertheless, there is a message in those things. And the way he kind of um, practically barked out his advisors who seemed to be in some doubt as to whether this invasion would be a wise thing. So this figure who we see in a way naked and we don't, in, we don't actually see people acting out a part so nakedly. And the question was, is this man mad? Or is this man using this image as a way of terrifying other people? So how far was it a conscious act? So I began with him. And then, uh, you know, I got more or less in chronological. Then I began to think of the invasion force. And soon it became clear that an awful lot of the invasion force were clueless conscripts, undisciplined and probably terrified, often 
going mad with their guns because they're so terrified and so angry because their own comrades are being killed. So what is it to send in a bunch of people who are not particularly competent, who've been sent in under false pretenses, which they may or may not discover to have been false pretenses. So I imagine the invasion force. Why don't uh, you read that poem? Okay, this is the invasion force. Then there were the boys in their death traps, uniformed, untrained, badly armed. They'd do. They were done, some terminally. Soldiers of gross misfortune, no one would hear die in high-glossed halls of power or in cheap kitchens of down-home cooking. So I think I think of them, but then after a little while, I've gone back to them in the most recent one. Then it's about the momentum, about once you've really begun this, you've crossed the border, what that brings, just a poem about butchery. And then the next stage, um, for me, when it, it upped in intensity and pressure was the destruction of the hospital, and particularly the maternity hospital, where I remember the pictures of the woman being brought out on a stretcher who's about to give birth. And of course, you later hear that she has died, and so has the baby. So that was, that was, if you like, already now beyond the scope of what you might think a civilized war, if there is such a thing. But I think there is such a thing. It means of armies fighting armies, etc. So there was a destruction of the hospital and um, how the destruction of the hospital might be presented. So that was that poem. And that was a step further in. And then there's one imagining Putin's rages. Well, they're a chronology of the war, but what I wonder is, does writing them help you deal with your own anger? You're explaining your work very calmly, but I wonder if underneath there's some kind of emotional disbelief this is actually happening in Europe again. Well, there is that, although I think one can look upon poem or any work really of, of art, literature, as the expression of the maker's state of mind. But to me, the more attractive proposition, um, which I think psychologically I go with, is that there are terrible things. Life continues to present us terrible things. And that the function of art, and particularly tragedy, I've written about this before, the function of tragedy is not to heal things, but to make us feel that it can be articulated in some way. You can make a shape out of it. In life, it will not make sense. In life, it will leave you absolutely raw. But that the function, this is a big statement, I know, but that the function of art is to give shape to things. And that in itself requires calm. And in a way it produces, I don't mean calm in a sense of relaxation, but it means that in language at least, things are both present and open and in a way completable. Um, so that they are, what I feel, I feel. But I don't want to state what I feel because frankly, I don't even fully know what it is very angry um, and of course I'm concerned and 
worried about the future, even our future in the near intermediate future. But I have to put that aside. I have to see at one point when I begin this poem, now I write the first line and I think I know what I'm going to write about. But all I really know at that point is the first line. When you begin to move through the lines and they are disciplined lines, five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. That's all sold for you, not having to think, what will this line look like? Or how long will this poem be? I know exactly. And then um, as I begin to move through the narrative of the poem, then I think there will be something there which will clarify some, clarify an issue. So you will have reached a point in which sort of the pathos, one of my favorite lines is what's written on Yeats's grave in Sligo, which is, uh, cast a cold eye on death, horsemen pass by. This idea of casting a cold eye sounds as though you, one is an icy hearted person. But I think at the point of making things, that sort of ice is in the nature of things. And that, that sense of concentration, icy concentration, is to some degree psychologically useful to me. But useful to me as an act, rather than as an articulation of the subject. I don't know if that makes sense. I think now would be a good time to read the poem about the bombing of the train station in Kramatorsk, where 50 people, including children, were killed while waiting for a train to evacuate them to safety. Station incident. Nothing will remain of this. It will have been blown into the furnace of the time to be consumed. You will not see it or remember it. The dead will have gone to sleep on a bare platform to dream their children as the train pulls out. To dream their children as the train pulls out. Well, that's uh, sometimes that point at which you get the transformation comes a bit earlier. Sometimes it comes right at the end. In this case, the transformation begins in the first line of the third verse. The first two verses simply state really the PR aspect of this. This is still to do with presentation. You won't remember this, this won't have happened. But then what happens as a result? What happens to the dead? So now the imagining of them not being blown to pieces, but simply lying down on the platform to sleep and dreaming their children, you know, watching the train pulling out as it might have done in real life. That's the point at which it opens up to me. And I think, right, this is where I'm on to something. Because what it sees is as though the scene hadn't happened, and yet it has happened. And um, somehow I find that moving. But I don't know when I'm beginning to write the poem, though that is where I will end up. The end of this conflict is not in sight, sadly. So how long do you think you can sustain writing these things for? I don't know. I ask myself that question. I felt, once I'd started, I felt bound to continue because it is some form of response. And I can't say, oh, here's just another day. Because I think if one does begin to say, here's just another day, you're helping, you're helping to disappear it. And you can't afford to let it disappear. I mean, there can only be so many 
atrocities which are denied that I could write about. But I think I might go back to Putin himself and I might go back because I've not written anything about combatants apart from this Russian soldier. There's another one of those now. But it depends what happens. I mean, I have no idea. Well, I have several ideas, but none of them convincing as to how this might end. I thought originally it would end with a relatively easy win on the battlefield, which would then be followed by a very long period of guerrilla resistance. That may still happen. Um, I can see that Putin's pride, it is necessary for him to come out with something. Not that I think we should actually give him anything. And I don't think the Ukrainians will want to give them anything. I think the great symbol there is, is Mariupol, which has been under siege and under bombardment really almost since this whole affair began. And um, so what will you have there? Will you have an entire city of the dead? Will you have a completely raised city? It is not impossible. How could Putin possibly like pass that off as we've just been putting down Nazis? I don't know. I don't know that anybody can know as to how this will end. But as far as the poems go, what the poems would like to do, as far as I'm consciously aware, is to seek in, in, in the incidents that come before it some kind of element of undigested something raw. So you find something, you find, for example, in a station incident, all these dead people sleeping on the platform, but at the same time dreaming of their children and the train is coming. It's gonna, it's gonna take them away. I mean, that is a horrible irony. And I've seen quite a lot of these poems are based upon terrible ironies. Um, partly the ironies of misrepresentation. Partly the ironies, the constant replay of history, which we know this is not new. It may be one thing, Michael, if you come out of Central Europe, as I've done even as a child, is you're left with a sense of the world. And the sense of the world is that nothing is stable. Everything is always on some kind of edge. You can't take anything for, God, for granted and that the world then has to work on that basis. And that the safety that possibly if you are born in Western Europe long after the war, you might have had a greater sense of security about this kind of thing. I don't think you have a great sense of security about many other things. But in this respect, we're not going to see massacres in Europe, are we? We're not going to see people sort of lying blatantly about having, you know, murdered people in hospitals, in schools, at the railway stations. But in a way, if you come from Eastern Central Europe, you think, ah, yes, yes, this isn't new. This is just ancient. And it's just part of things. It's the way the world is.
I think you're right. People in Central Europe have their worldview shaped by the absence of stability. And the agent of instability for centuries has been Russia, whether imperial czarist or Soviet expansionist or this hybrid 21st century tyrant on the loose form. People in Central Europe truly understand what Marx meant by everything that is solid melts into thin air. But, but you know, I'll give you very simple, concrete examples of this. If you come from Central Europe, um, you don't know where your borders are. You, you just know that that is not solid. Geography is not the solid thing that you might think if you were in a big island like the United Kingdom. Um, you know that, you know, all things melt into thin air, as you put it, um, and that um, such things are the normal condition of the world. This is not abnormal. This is normality going on. Um, and that is not necessarily a healthy state of mind because it makes you more trigger anxious. Trigger anxious is a poetic assemblage. My thanks to George Sertis for his time and his poetry. You can follow him on Facebook and read all his work, and I hope he won't mind, but I thought I would close by reading this recent poem of his. Soldier. Once he was dispatched into the exhausted world with his instrument of death, he was lost. Ready yet unready, nerves shot through. He lay down and waited his eyes closed under dead clouds of smoke on his length of earth, softening with rain. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. Please visit the website www.goldfarpod.com. Make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks. <laughs>